You're listening to Driving Law, a podcast by Kyla Lee about all things related to the rules of the road. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Driving Law. I am Kyla Lee. And with me is my hostess with the mostest, Paul Dorishenko. Hi, Paul. Hello. How are you? I mean, aside from the fact that you've got uh, coronavirus, apparently. <laughs> uh, well, announce it to the world then. Yes, I do. Um, so I'm about as well as can be expected when you are a victim of the pandemic. But uh, the likelihood is I'm going to be just fine. Um, so I'm not really trying to worry about it other than that I'm going to be coughing a lot while we're recording this podcast, so I apologize in advance. Um, I am recording from my house via phone. Paul is in the studio, and our person who does our editing is going to be doing it remotely, so we don't have as much uh, technology available to us this week. Yeah, Lewis will be doing it from somewhere high in the mountains where he's uh, in isolation, not because he was exposed to anybody, but because he should be in isolation, and so should everybody else. And yeah. uh, I'm in isolation. <laughs> well, I'm in isolation because I traveled, but I would, uh, you know, otherwise just be not locked down with my family in any event. Our office has been working with the skeleton crew this week. Most people have been working from home. We've had one or two people basically in the office every day. Um, but uh, just because the phone still has to be answered and... Um, and faxes that come in still have to be dealt with. But aside from that, we're in lockdown. Why? Because everybody should be in lockdown. We've got to yep. beat this thing. And I would just like to point out, too, that everybody who's coming in is coming in because they're choosing to. Nobody is required to come in right now. We're not that type of law firm where we're forcing people to come in. No. And the other thing is when they're in there, they're there by one person or two people and we've got backup people because we know that it's entirely possible that anybody who's out, you know, just coming to the office could be exposed to something on the way to and from the office. Yeah. But, so uh, if anybody wanted to walk into our office this week, you can't. Doors are, doors are locked. <laughs> doors are locked. They've been locked all week. So. Yeah. So what are we going to talk about today, Kyla? Well, I thought we'd start off by talking about the news from the Vancouver Police Department about that uh, really tragic tr- crash that happened uh, earlier um, this year, or I guess late last year, um, involving the Cardigo driver who smashed into the taxi driver, killing him. Yeah, they announced, uh, was it today? I think it was today, that they yeah. intend to charge the driver of the Cardigo, but the Cardigo driver has is not in the country uh, and is still recovering from the injury, and they're thinking about you know, when they're going to do this. They have, you know, they can do it at any point. Um, but um, yeah, interesting. What I found interesting was that they wouldn't say where the person was from. Oh, they did. Did they? They didn't. Yes. N- didn't hear it on any of the CBC things. So, did the Vancouver police say where the person was from? Uh, it was in the news story that I heard, I believe, on CKNW radio. And they said that he was from Ireland. They actually named him. Oh, okay. Interesting. So he's gone back to Ireland. He's receiving medical treatment there. Um, And essentially the police are saying it's not likely he's ever going to be charged given the state of his own injuries. So he's in bad enough shape that it might not make sense in the prosecutor's mind to charge him. Uh Aha. Okay. So he may never recover. 
Yeah, and and me also, now that he's gone back to Ireland, never come back to Canada to face the charges. Well, we would extradite from Ireland, one would think. That's why I thought it was interesting that they didn't mention the country of origin on CBC, because I thought maybe it was a country that there wasn't an extradition treaty. I assume that we have one with Ireland. Well, I assume as much they're part of the Commonwealth, aren't they? No. Ireland? Or... Commonwealth? I don't think so. But they're part of the EU, so... Right. Sure. They're they're part of the the nations that we deal with. I mean, we we accept a lot of Irish people on work permits every year in this country. So you would assume that we would have an extradition treaty if we're letting that many people in on work permits. Well, all you'd have to do is go to Europe and then you could be extradited. I mean, from anywhere in continental Europe. So I'm right. sure Ireland as well. In any event. So that is an interesting thing. Um, it's... Uh, you know, tragic that there's a death, tragic that there's a circumstance where it looks like they may never be able to prosecute. Um, it's bad. It's also really around. rare that they announce it this way, where they say, you know, the reality is that this is likely never going to happen. You don't see that happening very often where the police admit the frailty of their own case publicly. Well, it may not be the frailty of their own case. It may just be like, you know, whether or not that there's a social purpose in prosecuting the guy if he's in a coma or something like that and is never going to recover or he's got severe brain damage and is never going to recover what's the point of prosecuting him there either what's yeah, the but value if they're of recommending it? impaired driving charges the extent of his injuries play a role in the strength of the crown's case insofar as whether his symptoms were caused by something related to the accident as opposed to something related to alcohol consumption. Well, it was always, I, what I thought was interesting was that in British Columbia, we, of course, have the Crown Council makes the decision on charge approval. Mm -hmm. And so the police here have said that they are recommending charges to Crown. And it almost feels like they are trying to shame Crown Council into approving a charge or, in, you know, make people think less of the process where the police feel that a charge should be laid. Crown Council feels that a charge should not be laid. And I always get that sense when the, when, and VPD have done this before where they say, well, we're forwarding this for charge approval. Uh, and then they can sort of wash their hands of it if Crown chooses not to charge. And the Crown may choose not to charge for lots of reasons, maybe because the investigation was botched. You never know. Yeah. I mean, that happens. I, th I think this is a good opportunity to talk about something we don't talk about enough on this podcast, which is the charge approval standard in British Columbia, because it's, in my opinion, um, and I share this with the Senate, uh, the best charge approval standard in the, uh, in the country. We got the and best charge approval Trumpian. standard. <laughs> it is. Well, look, you have, you have jurisdictions where there are police-late information where you have individual officers who's, who's conducted, who've conducted the investigation, then making the decision about whether or not somebody's going to be charged, and if they're being charged, what charges to lay. And that leads to a whole range of mess, like police laying the wrong charges, police laying the charges improperly. Um, you know, I've dealt with, Alberta's a good example of this, right? I've dealt with lots of files out of Alberta, and I've had char cases where in Alberta they've charged the wrong charge for a refusal because the police officer didn't understand the different types of demands and he laid the charge. I had a case in Northwest Territory where they were charging my client with impaired driving and they specified that he was 
operating a motor vehicle to wit a and then gave a description of the vehicle with a license plate number yeah. in the information and actually gave the the wrong vehicle make model and license plate number so like, yes it's surplusage but it's completely different than the facts of the case um so i mean these are the myriad problems that you get with police late information and then you have you know the charge approval standard that lots of other provinces use which is you know uh, instead of a substantial likelihood of conviction you know some evidence to support conviction or balance probabilities type situation. I don't know. I think ours is best. Uh, I think ours is thoughtful. I think it, you know, mostly makes sense. It's a long time ago that we came up with it. It was 1991, I think it was Stephen Owen, um, who was mm-hmm. then the ombudsman. Was he the ombudsman? I think he was the ombudsman, but he he was like the head of legal services society before that. Um, and he was appointed to conduct a review of our charge approval standard, and he's the one who came up with the substantive likelihood of successful prosecution standard, and it's been criticized in the past. I remember uh, Diane Watts, um, like a decade ago, complaining about it. Um, but mostly when, yeah, you compare it to Alberta or you know even Ontario, where I've run trials in Ontario, uh, I was always amazed that the police were approving charges that the Crown would never approve here. Uh, And it seemed like there was pressure by the police on the Crown to prosecute those cases, even when they were not likely to lead to successful prosecution, which leads you to conclude that it's basically an abusive process because the people are being charged and prosecuted in circumstances where there's not a great likelihood of them being successfully prosecuted. And so they run the trial and win. And you're sitting there thinking to yourself, well, why the hell should that person have been put through this? Well, and also, why did we, as taxpayers in this country, pay for a judge to preside over that and pay for a sheriff to sit in the courtroom through that and pay for a prosecutor to prosecute that? Well, exactly. Yeah, it's wasting our money. You know, thousands and thousands of dollars. There was a judgment I read once where one judge actually did the math on how much it cost for him to have to be sitting in court to hear something that did not need to be heard and could have been avoided. Like, laid it out. He's like, I haven't you know, a BC Supreme Court judge, I make $309,000 a year. If you, you know, my number of sitting days a year, this is worth exactly this much money that has been wasted just on me being here to hear this that didn't have to be heard. Well, they're grossly overpaid. Um, I don't know. I don't gross. know. I don't know I don't they're know. grossly overpaid, but uh, well, hey, look, post-coronavirus, uh, everything could be different. Uh, they could be the some of the few people who have a job. Um, and, well, right and, now uh, not <laughs> and uh, perhaps they're being paid twice as much as they should be paid uh, relative to the rest of the society as things go on. Yeah, right now they're getting paid. Those people are still getting paid. They're at home, not working. Well, I hope everybody is getting paid right now who's not working because... Should everybody be should. paid the same high salary that they were getting or should they get some sort of reduced salary? I mean, maybe for people in positions like that, some sort of reduced salary. The whole thinking behind giving judges a really high salary is to protect their independence, right? If you pay them a lot of money to be judges, they're less vulnerable to being swayed by bribes. That's sort of the origin of that thinking. Yeah, well, look at that uh, judge who retired in the States who wrote the uh, letter to the um, to the U.S. Supreme Court complaining about how they were being influenced politically not because of 
you know, a threat to their independence of being fired, but because they've just been become patsies for the uh, Republican Party. Um, I think there's, uh, you know, the the threat of being fired and the amount they're getting paid is maybe not as important as we've put emphasis on in the past. And so I'm starting to wonder, I'm starting to wonder about a lot of things as we're dealing with coronavirus, but I'm also starting to wonder about judicial independence and and uh, whether or not we need some different oversight. Well, that's drifting off of driving law. That is drifting off of driving. But it brings us to oversight and independence and legislation. So we hinted at this two podcasts ago that there's a, well, we didn't hint at it. We talked about the fact that there's a Motor Vehicle Act Amendment um, bill currently before the legislature, which is sort of partially sitting just to deal with the state of emergency right now. So this is currently not being debated or addressed. It's on hold, which gives people time while they're home and have nothing else to do. Email your MLA and tell them this is BS. So this bill um, makes a lot of changes to the act. But one of the things it changes is the cell phone legislation. And so right now, the Motor Vehicle Act, Section 215.4 of the Act, talks about what you can and can't do with your phone. So it says, um, you know, 215, sorry, 214.1 defines what an electronic device is and what use is, 214.2 prohibits it, and 214.4 sets out exceptions, so when you can use it. And it says currently that it doesn't apply. The prohibition on using an electronic device does not apply if you're operating a motor vehicle that's safely parked off the roadway, not impeding traffic, to call or send a message to a police uh, force, fire department, or ambulance about an emergency, or that is configured, if the electronic device is configured and equipped to allow hands-free use in a telephone function and is used in a hands-free function in accordance with the regulations. So basically, if you're using it hands-free. We all know about the debates that have raged in this uh, province about what that actually means. You would think you've, that you've, when they you put the fire on the debate, Kyla, you're the one. What? You're the one who's fed the debate largely with all of these cases that come out each time. Don't blame one. me. I I'm didn't not, write the law. I'm not blaming you. I'm just saying this debate <laughs> exists largely because you're pointing out the problems to people. So I well, mean, I'm glad you're there. That's part of your role. That is my job. Um, so you would think when they table a bill, doing an overhaul of lots of stuff in the Motor Vehicle Act, they would fix this, you know, big debate language, you know, prohibit having it in your cup holder or explicitly allow having it in your cup holder. That we forget about the cup holder cases, the passenger seat cases, whether charging constitutes use. Define that. Does or doesn't say it in the act. Make it clear so everybody knows. But Paul, are they doing that? My aunt, my guess would be no. I seem to <laughs> recall before before the coronavirus crisis, we discussed this, and everything that we discussed at that point has all been wiped away from my brain. Mm-hmm. So I've been dealing with all of these other things, trying to keep a law office running remotely. So two fourteen point four one now being amended uh, to say subject to subsection two. Uh, the prohibition on using an electronic device does not apply to a person who uses an electronic device that is configured and equipped to allow hands-free use 
used in a hands-free manner and used in accordance with the regulations. It says the same thing, just in a different sort of order of the way that they've structured the subsection. Then, subsection 2 says, the exception in subsection 1 does not apply to a person who is operating a motor vehicle under a Class 7 license. So all they did was put a specific line in the legislation to say, if you have an N, you can't use your cell phone, rather than relying on the regulation that says if you have an N, you can't use your cell phone. Well, that's that's a, that, that makes that's a, that clarifies one issue, though. I mean, it before the police, yeah, but the, for the longest, before. yeah, but for the longest time, the police were just taking the position that as a N or a Class Seven driver, L or N, you couldn't have a cell phone even in the passenger compartment of your vehicle, um, and so at least it deals with that, or does it? It doesn't, because it it says a person must not use an electronic device. Yeah, right. So, so it's this use. section two fifteen point four two which is not amended by this bill, so which still says a person must not use an electronic device. And use still has the weird, confusing definition that nobody knows or understands. Well, it's unfortunate. This is not what they turned their mind to. They, instead, they turned their mind to something else when they were creating this piece of legislation, and that was to try and unwind any... Um, positive steps that have come with respect to the immediate roadside prohibition scheme from the courts over the last few years and arguments that you have come up with. But that really should be an entire podcast on its own. Maybe we'll have time to prepare for it next week because we'll be, well, (laughs) we're not running to court. Yeah, but I'm not running anywhere. So everything in traffic court now in British Columbia has been adjourned. We started adjourning things last week. Um, and because we could see, yeah, it was pretty clear what was happening by Thursday when we were already facing, um, Kyla and I both facing isolation for two weeks, uh, that there's no way that people could go to traffic court and the traffic court was unsafe in any event. So we started making adjournment applications last week and they were just being summarily adjourned. And now the court has come out, uh, and it took some time and I was frustrated by the time, but I'm pleased to see that they did it, uh, just adjourning everything adjourning everything in traffic court. So all cases have been adjourned basically for how long? What, six weeks or two months or something like that? Everything between um, March 18th and March, or sorry, May 4th was automatically adjourned and people are just going to get new dates in the mail. Yep, and that makes perfect Which is sense. an important time to pass on a message we've been trying to pass on to our clients, but in case any of them are listening here, if you disputed your ticket yourself, you may just get your date in the mail as opposed to it being sent to our office. It is important that if you get a letter in the mail, if there's some miscommunication, we have contacted the violation ticket center with every file, but if there's a miscommunication or something that fell through the cracks because there's a high volume they're dealing with right now, you need to give us that date as soon as you get it. We'll be monitoring the court's website. You can go to CSO online, which is court services online. If you type in CSO online, it seems to come up in Google. Uh, And you can find out when the date was that your matter was adjourned to, but expect that there will be not necessarily have a date at this point. Um, Dates will be scheduled as as time permits down the road. So it's going to be a backlog then. What happens if your matter is delayed? Do you have a charter argument for not having your trial in a reasonable time? 
The answer is no. 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 Of course not. The, <laughs> you know, this the is a medical emergency. That, yeah, the, the reason for that is that in Jordan, the Supreme Court of Canada gave examples of things that wouldn't count towards the presumptive ceiling of delay. So if there was a circumstance of a discrete event, like an earthquake, um, a pandemic. Or, a pandemic, exactly. Um, and the province, you know, issues an order that people have to self-isolate. And, you know, thousands of people are sick. And you're in the um, same boat as everybody else. Yeah. I mean, none of my trials will be going ahead. And I can't go into a courthouse right now. I can't leave my front porch. We may see courtrooms in the next six months that have separate glass boxes for every individual in the courtroom. Uh, if this continues and this may be the, you know, first of many pandemics, who knows? There's been, yeah. uh, economists who have predicted this. Uh, we never, you know, thousands, millions of years of evolution. We lived in small groups, couldn't pass this on. Now we pa could pass these things on and it can become a global thing very quickly. So who knows how life is going to change for everybody, but, um, you know, it doesn't permit you to have a, our, our constitution, our charter is flexible enough. And the application mm -hmm. is flexible enough that you're not going to be able to get a remedy for not having your trial uh, within 18 months. You know, and also, I would like to say to the people out there that think that they want to try and make this argument, please don't. Because you'd it be a was, dick. Yeah, you <laughs> would be. It was a real hassle trying to get the court to recognize that it needed to shut down. Like, I published a piece in the Lawyer's Daily. I called for this on Twitter. Um, the and that was days response, ago. That was on, like, on, that was days on Friday before it or happened. something, the weekend. Yeah, yeah. And, and the court's response when I initially started calling for it was, well, you know, um, we have sanitation measures in place, which is not good enough when you can literally cough and somebody can breathe in your your droplets. Well, you're and standing around the outside of the courtroom and there's, you know, 30, 40 people hovering around there. I mean, it's mm -hmm. fine if you're a judge sitting up on a bench. Yeah, you're, you're some distance away, except, you know, that person's going to cough and the sheriff is going to uh, end up, you know, facing a, uh, uh, having the, the virus and then, you know, talking to the, the judge in the back hallway. Yep. And then taking it down to self. Exactly. And once it gets into the prison system, we got a huge problem, which is you know, the problem that they've had in Iran, which is yeah. why they've released everybody out of jail and pardoned, you know, another tens of thousands of people just in the last couple of days to get them out of jail. I honestly think that anybody serving a sentence right now for a driving offense should just be released. Any, any, any nonviolent offense, just parole them right now. Parole them yep. today. Nonviolent offenses driving offenses, and any cannabis-related offense. Why are they in jail already anyway? Yeah. Yeah. Um, that's our view on jail. Uh, jail is <laughs> going to have to change. <laughs> jail is going to have to change, too. This did not intend... We did not intend this to be the COVID uh, driving law no. uh, podcast. We actually specifically were sort of going to focus on driving law. So let's get back to driving law, Kyla. Well... We did kind of intend for it to be the COVID driving law podcast because we wanted to talk about some driving law issues that were related to the coronavirus outbreak. And one of them is one that you discovered uh, about uh, Alka-Sensor FSTs, roadside breathalyzers. Yeah. You know, we were, Kyla and I were both supposed to 
uh, be presenting at a conference. And uh, I was looking at breathalyzers that, uh, because the conference was canceled, I ended up visiting a friend of mine and I was in his office looking at some of the breathalyzers he's got and the breath testing equipment. And I was thinking about the fact that, you know, they clean this equipment and this equipment can be packed full of all sorts of garbage. You know, the, the uh, experts always describe it as a scientific piece of equipment, but of course it's a scientific piece of equipment. It's basically an evidence gathering, uh, generating piece of equipment. And they can be packed with all sorts of garbage and it started to get me thinking about it. So the old Alco Sensor 4, which was the device that I sort of sadly, I guess now, right now, feel bad about taking credit for it being um, no longer used in British Columbia, had a one-way valve when you blew into that breath tester at the roadside. Mm -hmm. And the device that replaced it, the Alcosensor FST, is just a straw. And I'm sitting here with it in my hand, and if you want to get a look at it, you can go watch any of our YouTube videos in the Can You Fail It series, and you can see what it looks like. It's... Um, it's small, it's handheld. There's a white plastic mouthpiece that goes on top, which is really a straw that's closed at one end. It's got two holes in the bottom that go to the flow uh, meter and go to the, um, to the sensor, of the fuel cell. And then there's an exhaust port, a vent on the top of this thing. And when you blow through it, Kyla and I have noticed when we do the Can You Fail It series, because we've got lights on us when we're recording these videos, Spittle comes out, it's aerosolized, and it comes out of the top of the thing. And where does it go? Goes into the it's face out. of the officer. Uh -huh. And then it lands back down on top of it on their hand. Yeah. And this is a real dangerous thing uh, in light of uh, pandemic. And I went onto the website for the manufacturer and some resellers of these devices, and you can tell that they're panicked because they're publishing some information on there <clears throat> about breath testing, but it doesn't actually really deal with the issue. And nobody wants to say anything for fear of um, saying something that's not adequate enough. Uh, uh -huh. And a police officer gets injured. So I created two quick videos, and, and people always think that, like, I'm some sort of police hater. I'm not. I'm not. Yeah, I'm not. I, I, I like police officers. I like them. I, you know, just wish that they would sometimes think about things differently. But um, the video was to explain to police officers some methods that you can do to be slightly safer. Uh -huh. uh, in my view, right now, we should probably suspend the use of these devices and maybe think about a different device. You know, we had... Um, 2,200 AlcoSensor 4 DWFs that were purchased in the summer of 2010. Mm -hmm. They were defective, but they are better than these. And so I'm hoping they are still an approved device. I'm hoping that if the police are still testing them, that they pull out the old AlcoSensor 4s and start using them. Yeah, because the AlcoSensor 4 exhaust port was the end. It's off the side. Yeah. It shoots off the side. So you can hold it in a manner that it's not going to land on your hand. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's got a one-way valve in it. So the problem with the, the FST is it doesn't have a one-way valve in it. You can suck back into it. It's the same as the Intoximeter uh, 400D that they used to use in Alberta. You can suck back. 
and you can suck in whatever pathogens are on the fuel cell, on the nipples for the uh, mouthpiece, or in the flow meter. So if you're at a roadblock situation and the person before you blows and they've got coronavirus and you suck in because you're taking a breath in as you go to blow, you can end up getting that virus as a consequence. And that is a huge problem. And there was no reason they needed to transition from a device that used a one-way valve. No, and but the one-way valve it, itself is not even enough. But it's um, something. It's, it's something. at least one level of protection. Well, it protects the driver. Reason. It protects yeah. the driver. It doesn't protect the police officer. But yeah. I mean, they could redesign a one-way valve, but you can't redesign this device to protect the police officer. And my big concern right now is police officers because it's, you know, you can be exposed to multiple people. You, We will still have people driving, um, mm-hmm. you know, who are driving impaired. And police need this tool. They need a tool of some sort to be able to assess people. So, I mean, right now, if I was a police officer, and, and I said it in these videos, uh, if, if you are not comfortable testing that individual don't do it. There's other ways to protect the public. You can issue a 24-hour driving prohibition, takes that person off the road. If you feel that you've got enough evidence for uh, an impaired driving charge, you can still assess them. You don't have to stand near them in order to do it. You know, you can stand a meter away and two meters away from them in order to do it. Take good notes, have them sit on the curb, issue them a 24-hour driving prohibition and a promise to appear. Yeah, and make sure you're wearing gloves, disposable gloves with each person that you're dealing with. With the person, but and if you decide that you're going to use an AlcoSensor 4, I think you have an onus now. I, the most recent study I heard today came out and said that coronavirus can live three days on a plastic surface. Most of the device is a plastic surface. If you're using an AlcoSensor FST and you're having somebody blow, you better not use it more than once every three days, and you should clean it. And the manufacturer suggests cleaning methods, disinfecting, cleaning. They try and make a distinction. You can't really disinfect it, you know, be 100% confident of that. Um, I looked at their methods, and I added some more things that I thought were, you know, made sense, including putting it in a Ziploc bag uh, after you've done it and protecting the mouthpieces. Right now, you know, up until now, Police officers typically have popped the mouthpieces out and let them land on the ground and said, I'll deal with it later. Um, that's not good enough now. I mean, you've got something that's that's a, a biohazard. So if you've got a mouthpiece, you should be sticking it in a bag and disposing of it safely. Yep. Now, there's a lot of changes to driving law and driving law adjacent things that have been happening as a result of the coronavirus. Um, One of the big ones that we've seen is ICBC canceling 15,000 road tests that have been booked across this province. Yeah, and so that's a lot of people who are not going to be driving. Um, My concern is people who are prohibited from driving right now in circumstances where uh, it's probably, you know, in the public interest generally to deter people, but in these circumstances, not. Uh, and we've got a transit shutdown that's happening. It's not and a shutdown. They're, they're, right now in the Lower Mainland, they've made transit free. 
You have to board via the rear doors. Yes. For now. <laughs> Point is, it's who wants to be on the bus. Uh, it's not safe. You can't you can't do the social distancing that you need to do. Of course, you can't do it on an airplane either. Um, you don't want to be in a taxi with a taxi driver or in an Uber. You want to be in your vehicle by yourself or with the person you're isolated with, the people you're isolated with continuously. So, um, you know, what do you do in circumstances where you've got somebody who's, you know, a, a new driver and they're getting a three-month driving prohibition right now? I mean, to me, the superintendent of motor vehicles, the government needs to think about that. You've got people who are medical professionals who got a cell phone ticket three months ago and are now facing a driving prohibition as a result of that cell phone ticket. They can't get to work at the hospital where they're providing frontline care for people who are suffering from disease. Exactly. So this is, you know, we've got the, um, you know, uh, we've declared a state of emergency, which is engaging legislation that gives Mike Farnworth and the government uh, a whole lot of power to do things. And one would think one of the things they should be doing is reassessing whether or not driving prohibitions that are pending uh, or even in existence already should be revisited, particularly in light of this. I mean, do you really want to charge somebody with driving while prohibited if they're a doctor and they're prohibited because they got a cell phone ticket, you know, their second cell phone ticket in two years? Well, it's also frustrating um, to see cases where they have discretion not to impose a driving prohibition or where they have discretion to suspend a driving prohibition that's been imposed and they're not exercising it. Like we have clients who are getting their, you know, timelines to render decisions in their IRP cases where they're already prohibited for 90 days um, and they're serving that prohibition. They're getting their decisions. The timeline's being extended, and they're told, sorry, um, you can't have your license back in the meantime while we're extending this. Why are they extending it? Because they're short-staffed because of coronavirus. And they're not giving people their licenses back, which means they're putting more people on public transit, more people potentially not able to work in frontline services. They're not looking at what a person does when they're making that decision. They're just not giving people their licenses in a, a time of, of crisis. You know, we, we, one of the reasons that, this is for our listeners who are not lawyers, one of the reasons that we're not generally arguing about, you know, so-and-so is a doctor and therefore he's got a, you know, really needs to be able to drive is because there's always a concern that there's going to be some sort of favoritism for the favored group. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, there's the doctor who, is able to get into the restaurant and get get a reservation when you can't and gets the uh, the seat in the nice section and you're seated in the ugly section um, <laughs> just because they're a doctor. And uh, I'm referring to curb your enthusiasm there just as you're sitting at home watching TV uh, because you've got nothing else to do in isolation. You might as well watch that too. Um, but there's a, there's a concern, right? And nobody wants to see favoritism on the basis of occupation. Uh, but this is a circumstances where a circumstance where there's a genuine need, uh, and maybe there's been a need all along, and maybe we've sort of lost our way a little bit in um, in the last little while because we've been become complacent. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, somebody, a friend of mine, um, was texting me and he said, Jesus, I hope people become a little bit more decent now because I think, you know, a huge portion of the population have become assholes. And I'm hoping that people will will think things through and become a little bit more reasonable now and a little bit more tolerant of others and, and focus on things that really matter rather than, you know, being dicks. Um, yeah. I'm kind of hoping that that's true too, but we'll see. Well, also, you know, I think our institutions have to reassess now how we've been doing things. I mean, our, our government institutions and our courts have been so slow to adapt to change. I mean, how hard is it to, like, have telephone appearances or electronic appearances for matters with counsel? And yet we don't. So we many things can be handled over the phone. So yeah. many things and now, can be handled over the phone. We can mass adjourn things with one email. Fantastic. Um you know, this has actually worked surprisingly well, which tells us that we're equipped to deal with this. We've had we've had article students driving to court, and they're you know the yeah. expectation is they're not going to get to that courthouse until ten thirty, and you know there's a new young crown who asks for a warrant for the client's arrest, and the the judge may issue it. Um, mm-hmm. Then the student gets there and has to vacate it, and you're wondering why the hell did they is this so needlessly complicated yeah. and and stupid? There's counsel. Counsel has appeared five times already on the thing as we're trying to resolve it. Maybe we even have a resolution and we're just looking for a date to go into court to deal with it. And, yeah, and there are notes on the file to that effect. Yeah, and then you get there and you've got to vacate a warrant. Um, it's just so much of it to me is just ridiculous and i'm hoping that this provides perspective to a lot of people who are in the system that you know we need some changes um but but who knows i wanted to talk about with you on this and and bringing it back to my point about icbc canceling the fifteen thousand road tests we now have fifteen thousand people who are more vulnerable of getting driving prohibitions because they're subject to different license restrictions right if you're waiting to take your class class 7 road test versus your L road test, if you're waiting to take your full license road test so you can get rid of your N, those people are all subject to greater restrictions. And I see this cancellation of these 15,000 tests as the start of what may ultimately become, if the situation doesn't, you know, get better here and we don't flatten the curve, what may ultimately become a situation where ICBC is closed. They're going to shut it down because they can't, you know, control the distance between people and they need to protect their staff. And it all makes perfect sense. They're exchanging documents and, and all of that. Well, you get in a car uh, with somebody for the road test. You're sitting beside yeah, them in sure. a car. Sure, but even when, you're, even when you're at the thing, right, you're filing documents, you're giving them money, all of that puts the people who are working at ICBC at risk and it puts the people who are interacting with the workers at risk. There's so much that we do with ICBC that could be, I mean, we're lawyers, we're a recognized law office who deals with ICBC driver services every day, and we, yet, we still have to send somebody down rather than having them set up an account for us um, and being able to do it by fax or email better. People laugh at faxes being used by lawyers. Um, You know, some sort of online login for law offices to do this. But again, well, it's off. part of the part of the reason they do it, though, is they're like, well, we don't want to show favoritism to lawyers and law offices. Well, yeah, we know the arguments. We understand how the system works. We represent the person. You represent 
the government, which is essentially representing the police officer. (laughs) Think about the timelines that people have to deal with right now. You're going to tell somebody who gets an IRP that now they have to go. They have to figure out, first of all, they don't have their car, their safe way to avoid other people to get around. They have to risk public transportation or a taxi or an Uber to get to an ICBC driver services center. Then once they're there, they have to pick a number, wait until their name is called in a large group of people who are all sitting close to them, waiting until their name is called. I always joke that I always have to smell the smell of urine of that, you know, one guy who's there. The other person (laughs) smells like a dog. Then they have to go up to the counter. They have to deal with the person at the counter, and they have to do all of this within seven days right now of when they got their IRP. Which brings brings us back to the ridiculous aspect of the Isinger-Durkuch case at the BC Court of Appeal where they said seven days, that's it, doesn't matter even if it's a pandemic. Yeah, apparently, even if it's a pandemic, your seven days cannot be extended. And if they close the ICBC, if they close them and they're closed for two months, like our courts are, what are people going to do? How are they going to file? Are they equipped to get online applications for review and pay with credit card? I doubt it. Well, they weren't even equipped up until two months ago to take submissions from us by email. So we have had to fax for years. We've been having to fax in the submissions. And we're talking hundreds of pages of submissions in uh, IRP hearings, immediate roadside prohibition hearings, fax it in. And you know, then they'd phone us and say, well, we got 46 out of out of 47 pages and oh we got to fax it again so they introduced electronic documents at their end because they didn't want to have files that were that were 10 centimeters thick okay fine but they didn't get rid of the fax until finally we were arguing so often that they hadn't had our didn't get our submissions and now recently we've been able to email it but that's only in the last that's in the last month and that's only with yeah with permission and that was only because they were having so many problems with their facts that they couldn't actually receive faxes. Yeah, it wasn't a problem with us. We had, to, I mean, we've had our problems with our fax machine because we've sure. got so much overloaded faxes, but we've got two gigantic high-end Ricos to send our faxes in, to send them to their Rico uh, machine, which now arrives electronically for them. But yeah, so we went through all of that. But I just keep thinking about that person who has issued an IRP tonight um, at uh, 11.59 and then is trying to file their IRP in the next week and they're going to miss it because maybe they've got a fever and they're sick and they couldn't blow in the first place and that was why they were alleged to have a refusal by some officer because there's nothing in the manual, nothing in the AlcoSensor FST manual, you can go online and look for it, about a person having a medical issue that keeps them mm-hmm. from being able to blow. Um, so the police officer must issue the IRP if they don't get a reading on the device. And then that person is sick for a week. They can't apply for a review. And the BC Court of Appeal, and they I'm can't dissing leave. them. They can't leave their, their home. House. The BC Court of Appeal has said, nope, that's it. You're out of luck. And yeah. you think to yourself, and I'm sorry, I'm dissing the BC Court of Appeal here. Probably well, not the best thing I should ruling. do. But it is it is absolutely ridiculous. Like, did they not think about the fact that things don't always go the way well, that we want in society? Remember, 
Mr. Eisinger was arrested at the same time he got his IRP. He was in and jail. held in jail for 10 days. Could not file because he was in jail. Yeah, I know. I know. And I remember you argued it. And I'm like, this is absurd. I cannot believe that a person, is, he's in jail. He gets his paperwork when he's released from jail and his seven days are up. The most offensive part about that to me is that at both levels of court, the BC Supreme Court and the Court of Appeal, the court was like, well, if there was a power to extend the time, obviously this would be the circumstances that would justify it. So they, they, they're basically saying, yeah, this guy got fucked, but nothing can be done about it. Yeah, that's total, so, total I, crap, total crap. I'll never be on the Court of Appeal, obviously, because that's not what I would have ruled. Um, well, the uh, Suzanne Anton, the remember Suzanne Anton, you recall, oh, yeah. Suzanne Anton was our justice minister, she was called then. So we had, I think, merged the uh, attorney general with the solicitor general. That was a, like a Christy Clark's brilliant innovation. And uh -huh. she came out and said, oh, we're going to make it more fair. And what they did was they made it less fair. So they didn't deal with that at all. They didn't fix anything to do with the seven-day time period. Nothing. Uh, and then they introduced uh, version uh, 3.5 where they reversed the onus. So it was no longer that the police officer had to submit enough evidence to substantiate the fact of an immediate roadside prohibition. The police officer could issue a post-it note. Um, you, the onus was on you to prove your innocence. That was that was Suzanne Anton making it more fair. Yeah, that's ridiculous. It's absolutely absurd. I, I just it boggles <laughs> my mind the whole thing. And and now we like, have. I, I wonder sometimes why I don't. Why I actually I do wake up at four in the morning crying. I was about to say I wonder why I don't wake up at four in the morning crying. <laughs> I I do. So. so we have a pandemic right now, Paul, and I guarantee you that ICBC. And the superintendent of motor vehicles, if they have to close the driver services centers, are going to take the position of too bad, so sad. Yep. In fact, I will put money on it. We'll make another public bet on this podcast. $100. If they close down ICBC, it won't matter. They won't do anything to extend the seven days because they'll look at the legislation and say, sorry, the BC Court of Appeals already ruled. We don't have the power. I won't take that bet, Kyla. I won't take that bet, because the only way that we'll succeed is if we humiliate them, which is unfortunately how we've done things by publicly humiliating government in the past. Remember when the uh, deputy uh, uh, superintendent of motor vehicles came out and said that they were taking the interlocks out of 1,100 vehicles and then ultimately 11,000 mm -hmm. when you and I filed that um mandamus order petitions seeking forcing them to actually think about doing it when they hadn't thought yep. about doing it oh goodness so many things we've done and um it's kind of sad because there's no running log except our blog our blog's got some of the running our log. blog the podcast yeah um, so historians can go back for legal history um that'll be a third year course probably or <laughs> master's compulsory well, master's degree course I, I hate to crush your dreams but nobody's studying the legal history of shit acumen law did yeah 50 years from now i'll be dead and everybody will have forgotten me which makes me think or sooner i might ridiculous. be dead i might be dead sooner am i being ridiculous it's time for ridiculous. <laughs> the ridiculous driver of the week <laughs> Thank you.
the ridiculous driver of the week. Um, okay, so this one, I haven't even told you about this yet. This driver... Well, you, 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 I, I don't see you in the office anymore because we're living in isolation. Yeah. <laughs> um, this driver has, this ridiculous driver, has listed his Mazda Miata for sale with the greatest Craigslist ad ever. I'm just going to read it to you. Go ahead. Uh, 2569 or maybe even less. This thing's a piece of shit. Bought this car in summer 2018, thinking it would be a good summer car. It's a lot of fun, but it's been through some shit. Comes with soft top, hard top is gone. Soft tops are better anyways. Drop that shit anytime you want and enjoy the breeze. I learned to drift in this thing and sent it into a ditch a few times. Also slammed into a curb going sideways at 40 miles per hour, cracking one of the OEM wheels, and my alignment hasn't been the same ever since. So the suspension is pretty fucked up, no doubt. Shit gets a little scary past 80 miles per hour, so you need to have massive balls to drive this thing. Not to mention the tires are bald. There's holes in the trunk lid, weight reduction, and duct tape over the holes. Pretty badass. The brakes squeak speed like a holes. motherfucker. Those are speed holes. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> the brakes squeak like a motherfucker. All the pads and rotors are pretty new. I drank a few Coronas and did the front brakes. Everything went smooth. Did the rears, but we didn't drink a few Coronas, so we fucked up in every way possible. So the left rear caliper is new, but rusted as fuck, but it still stops. If you don't like NVH, don't bother with this car. It's so fucking loud and rattly and squeaky. The clutch even started making a noise, but I ignored it, and it went anyway. This car's been in a few accidents as well. First time, it got hit when I owned it was last year. It got repaired for the most part, but the suspension didn't get fixed, so it developed the notorious Miata death wobble at 65 miles per hour. Second time it got hit, it didn't really do anything, but the guy that hit it kindly left his information, so I got it repaired. Third time it got hit, some fuckboy in an Escalade rear-ended me on the freeway and sped off. I chased him, but this thing is so fucking slow, I spun out on the freeway exit, so I lost him. But the collision didn't do shit, and I didn't want to pay the deductible, so the back left still looks more like shit than the rest of the car. This thing burns a lot of oil, and it leaks too. Under the side of the car has a bit of rust. Interior isn't too great. Driver's side window regulator is fucked. Both fucked. Flippy headlight button is kind of fucked. A lot of things on this car are fucked. Anyways, yeah, my neighbor said this is a great midlife crisis car, so hit me up if you uh, go in through it right now. I swear this shit will change your life if it doesn't kill you. Uh, that's an entertaining ad. That's a scrap <laughs> car. But I'll tell you, if it was a... Um, I was just thinking today... The value of a lot of things is going to drop, and the value of that Miata was already $18.15, and now it's probably, you'd have to pay somebody to haul it away, because the uh, we're going to have an extended period of time where things are worth a lot less. Think of all the cars on car dealership lots right now. Cars are still being manufactured. They're in ships. They're being shipped. Yeah, um, my car dealer has called me three times this week despite the fact that each time i have told them to remove me from their list and sent me two letters in the mail telling me about their big sale event i was thinking of replacing my car that was in the accident back in november because it's it's got a squeak ever since the accident and i haven't had time to deal with it it's a it's one that was there before and this is now much more prominent since the accident i kind of like it because it reminds me of my 84 volvo 240 my my car's rear wheel drive and i kind of like the feeling like it's falling apart um but i was thinking of replacing it and i keep thinking that you know i could probably phone a car dealership and and buy a car at like 
60% of its list price right now. Because just like in 2008, they're going to have all of these cars sitting. Nobody's going to be doing anything. And nobody's going to have any money to buy a car. Like, car dealerships are going to be fucking facing a crisis. Well, this guy's going to be, you know, happy to have his Miata. But going back to our ridiculous driver, Paul. I'm sorry. Who the heck puts up a Craigslist ad to try and sell their car and talks about the way they never maintained it and drove it like they stole it? Well, back in the day before we were in the pandemic, uh, people didn't have a whole lot of perspective. And somebody, some millennial probably would have thought, oh, that's cool. I'm going to go buy that thing. And they had more money than brains. Hey, and we're you know. ready. And I'm not knocking every. You know, my dream car is a Miata, right? <laughs> Was that, oh God, I hope. Well, my 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 dream car from teenagehood. My dream car now is an El Camino because I've grown up and I'm more responsible. Late '80s, early '90s, I used to fly to California. I'd fly to San Diego. I'd buy MGBs. I drove them back up to Edmonton. I'd clean them up. I did nice job. A nice job on them. Some of them I'd paint. I'd put new engines in them, and I'd sell them. And I'd made myself a couple thousand dollars, and that was not a bad, you know, way of earning a little bit of extra money. I'd do it a few times a year. It was fun. Um, but of course, you know, there was fewer dwindling MGBs and then the Miata came out and the Miata fucked me and free trade came out and then you could start bringing new cars in and all these car dealers started bringing up truckloads, quite literally truckloads of Porsche 924s and 924s were, you know, basically a, a crappy car with a Audi engine in it, uh, that wasn't very strong at the time. It's probably, a, the ones we have now are a derivative of it, but I mean, they were fine and everything, but who wants a 924? You don't even remember what a 924 is. A 928, sure, but a 924, even a 944 would be okay, but a, a 924? Anyway, so it ruined the market for California cars because car dealers were doing that. It ruined the market when Miatas came out, and that was the end. And then I thought, fuck, i got to go to university and look at me now. Look at you now. What a mistake that was. Failure, yeah. yeah. <laughs> All right, well... We're sufficiently off track on this podcast, and I've reached we're beyond my wall the we're beyond the period. time period, and I'm I'm assuming that people are being more introspective right now, so maybe they want an opportunity to hear us being introspective. Okay. Less on, well, less... that is our podcast for the week. <laughs> if you have any driving law related questions or any concerns about your rights as a driver in this weird time of upheaval and confusion give us a call we're still answering our phones every day we're still here to help you out with your driving law related needs you can reach us at 604-685-8889 or find us online vancouvercriminallaw.com and tune in next week we'll still be bringing you another episode of driving law